I want to welcome all of you to Woven Covenant Church, and it's good for us to worship together and to be together for the start of 2019. Allow me to just reiterate our vision. Woven exists to be a diverse church community for the greater Houston metro area that is desegregating Sunday and sanctifying Monday to Friday. We do this through our three mission priorities. First is insightful teaching. Second is intentional discipleship. Third is holistic outreach. And to that end, um, in this collective that is called Kingdom City, each church has its different strengths. I think this is something, these mission priorities are the strengths that we have, the things that we focus on. Um, Paul mentioned the community group. That's something that we want to kick off again strong. I think we did that well in uh, the last season. That was something that I think we um, built some pretty good rhythms. We want to continue that. And then the examine that we also do, it's our own special examine. It's something that our church does. Uh, That's coming up on Wednesday. That's something that we also do well. As well as Sunday school. We started our first Sunday school of the year today. And that's something that I can see see us doing long, long range. Um, There's just a lot of good stuff to learn. And I think we're in a community of learning together. These are just some of the things that we do that we do well. And so as we, re, as we enter into 2019, wanting to encourage everybody to plug in in one of these areas that I've mentioned, whether it's Sunday school or the community group or the examine, um, this is a, these are the on-ramps for us to get activated. I definitely hope that we will not just see church involvement as a Sunday morning, um, but that we can get into the community. And to that end, today we're talking about the subject of praying with each other, and that the spiritual life is not something that can be done alone, um, to kind of just be in service and to hear the talking head, but it, 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 an important part of that is the engagement and the connection that happens. The connection is a very important part of um, being a church, and so today we're talking about praying with each other, that's actually today's um, theme for the 21 days. These 21 days, Paul, thank you for introducing that. That saves me some time here. Um, let me just mention, if you have not been receiving the daily devotionals for any reason, um, in your communication card, in the yellow communication card, uh, just include your email address and let me know if you'd like to opt in to receive that email. One way or another, you should have received at least some email devotionals this week. Some, some, as Nick mentioned to me, even particularly customized. And I hope that these have been helpful. Use them as as a tool for your own spiritual walk. Um, And we also talked about on Saturday, January 26th, um, the joint worship celebration at 6 p.m. Now listen, these are some of the things that Kingdom City is doing. You don't have to do it the Kingdom City way. You can use this time for your own devotional. If you say, well, I have a way of doing things, um, use this time for your own devotional. You might be wondering, why 21 days? 
Why is it the 21 days or not 31 days or 60 days? The reason 21, that's exactly three weeks. Seven days times three weeks, 21. And it's understood that if you do something for three weeks straight, every day consecutively, you're, I would say, on the road to building a habit. You haven't just built a habit yet, but you're on the road. And what better way to start 2019 than with building the habit of daily um, um, spiritual pursuit, daily prayer. And so if you don't want to do it the Kingdom City way or use a devotional, um, find your rhythm. Find your rhythm for these 21 days to pray, to fast, if that's something that you can do. Um, I especially want to encourage the Wednesday night prayer meeting. Um, I say that because there's something about people across different cultures gathering together to pray. Um, And even if the culture is a little bit different in terms of the style of prayer, there's something about that that discipline of praying together in a community that I think is really, really powerful. Um, In my own Korean heritage, that was a very big part of who we were. In fact, they did it every morning um, before they would go into the shop or to the the laundromat or wherever they worked. Um, It was customary to stop by church at the same time, and everybody, they had a prayer meeting. They would have prayer meetings every morning. So I think there's something powerful in that, um, praying together. So I, I definitely want to keep selling that um, in the weeks and months to come. That at least once, at least once, experience the joint prayer meeting. Um, but however it looks for you. An- another thing, <laughs> you know, I want you to do it your way, but I'm giving you all these ideas. Here's another thing. You know, we've, we've learned about the examine. We've been, that's something that we just do here at Woven. And the reason the examine is so important, I mean, this goes back historically. Christians in the last couple of hundred years have, have egged each other on, have spurred each other on with something called soul questions. In some traditions, I think of the Methodists back in the day when, they, when Christians gathered together. I mean, yeah, yeah there's, there's, the, um, there's the obligatory talk about the weather and then sports and but then what, what, what would happen is they, they, would, they would say, okay, let's get down to business. How is your walk with the Lord? That's what Christians do. And on Sunday morning, it's kind of hard to kind of do that, to get, in, to get deep. So there has to be an intentionality design behind it. How is your walk with the Lord? And then there's subsequent follow-up questions. That's the purpose that our examine serves. It's an intentional tool to get us to go deeper. And we've done it, at, at, it it's been predominantly um, men meeting downtown, people coming from work and stuff, but it's not just limited to, um, what, if, what if that's not something that we just do once a month, but it's something that is some, uh, that throughout these 21 days, what if you found a prayer partner right here in this room, and you said, hey, Anthony, could I call you every morning on the way to work? You're commuting at what time? 7 o'clock, I'm commuting at 7, perfect. So, you know, I'll just put my earphones on, and while we're driving into work, do you mind if we just kind of run through the questions of the examine? Well, I don't remember. Uh, I'll keep it open on my phone and just kind of glance back and forth and just ask some of these basic questions, or at least what I remember. But we do this on a daily basis. See what that does to your spiritual life. I can tell you the truth for myself. I do that. It's not with anybody here, but I have my prayer partners once a day, um, 
And I've done this consistently for the last more than a year. Every single day, holidays included. What are you grateful for? Is there anything that you need to confess? Um, Do you have any strong emotions, resentments, or fears? Anything that you need to check in? And it is a very, very powerful tool. Not because you're, it's, it's, it's your devotion, it's, it's not because it's your devotional or your confessional, but because you're connecting. You're connecting with somebody and you're getting the inside out. And for me, that's, that's powerful. Um, sometimes I, I just want to get through it. And I'm talking to my partner, my prayer partner, and we just go through the regular questions and we're done. But sometimes something comes up and we're talking for 45 minutes. That's when a connection happens. And that's what I really want to drive at today is this experience of connectedness. This experience of sharing your struggles with somebody and somebody on the other line saying, I know how that feels. It, 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 I know exactly how that feels. There's something about, about sharing somebody, something with somebody and, and you hear on the other line, not criticism. And it's important that we listen, that we listen well to each other also. Not criticism, but what you hear on the other line is, I get it. All is forgiven. Be forgiven. Be released. These are some of the things that I see. You know, let me help you. We yearn for those words. The daily, not just affirmation, but clarity. And we yearn for this daily sense of reprieve. This daily absolution. I mean, Jesus says this very thing in in John chapter 20. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. He doesn't say, he doesn't say do this to a priest. He says, you all, regular people, if you forgive each other's sins, you have the capacity to absolve another person of their sins. That profound, powerful need. There's a story, um, there's a story I heard. It's a, a beautiful little story about a father and he had a, an argument with his son, and his son was old enough to, to run away. And so his son left, and the father was despondent. And after a couple of days, the father put an ad out in the newspaper. And the advertisement, it said, Paco, I'm sorry. Come home. All is forgiven. And that, that ad was reprinted hundreds of thousands of times and went all throughout saying, Paco, I'm sorry, I love you, all is forgiven. And it said, meet me tomorrow, I want to receive you back, meet me at the town square at noon. The next day at noon, when the father showed up, there were 500 Pacos waiting for him there, all looking to hear those words, all is forgiven. All of us, like Paco, have that need for connection to hear those words, it's forgiven, you're absolved, you're okay, I know how it feels, I'm with you, I'm on your team. And so praying together is a very necessary and powerful tool. We can pray alone, and remember we went through the series with Bonifer, Dietrich Bonifer and Life Together. Bonifer talked about how praying by ourselves just to God, yes, that's important, But confessing our sins alone to God somehow doesn't have the same effect as confessing to another human being. What I call God with skin on. It's hard. It's easy almost to confess to God. It's hard to confess to another person. But that's where the healing is. 
That's where the healing is. And so what I want to teach today are two halves. You see these in your bulletin. The first, these are two effects of praying with each other. Two effects. The first effect of praying with somebody else, and you can't get this alone, I believe. The first effect of praying with somebody else and confessing to another person, God with skin on, is we break the cycle. That's the first effect. Break the cycle. The second effect that happens when we pray with somebody else, when we're regularly confessing our sins, when we're actually doing this, the second thing that happens is we heal. We get better. So first, we break cycles, and secondly, we heal. Now, how many people want to break something in 2019? Whether it's that, that tick, right? Or whether it's that way that you talk to your loved ones. Or whether it's that road rage. Or whether it's that, the bad habit of, of you know, uh, eating too much. or Whatever. What is that thing? Whatever that thing is, I'm sure all of us here want to break through. I'm with you, Paul. I like who I am today, and it's taken a lot of work to get there, but I can do better. And that's not just the Asian thing in me speaking like you can do better. No, it's, it's more so that I know there are things in me that, that really are setbacks, that unless I'm being sanctified, unless I'm regularly working and confessing my sins, that those things can suck me back to 2001, or back, you know, one step forward and three steps back, we want to get better in 2019. And so we want to break the cycle. We want to heal. Let's talk, about, let's talk about the first of those two headings. Breaking the cycle. We confess in order to break the cycle. What does it mean to break the cycle? If you've ever read the entire Bible, the Bible in its entirety, especially when you look at the Old Testament books of Judges, and then the Kings, and then the Chronicles, you know what it looks, you know how it reads? It reads like a repeated sin cycle over and over and over again. It reads like cycles that never really get broken. After all, they were humans, just like we're humans today. And then we ask ourselves, my goodness, if from the earliest judges to the very last king of Israel, if they couldn't seem to get it right, what hope do I have? How do we break the cycle? How do we break that cycle? I don't know what it is, but I've always been fascinated on this subject. How do we break generational curses? How do we break these cycles? I want to be different from my grandfather, or I want to be different from this, this history that follows me. So here I want to turn our attention to um, something that is called the regnal formula. The regnal formula. Regnal means king. And the regnal formula, or the formula, the kingly formula, we can see this all throughout the books of Kings and also Chronicles. If you read the books of Kings and Chronicles, the regnal formula starts, it's the opening words of every term of, of, of each king. So when this king comes up, it will say, King so-and-so ruled uh, for this many years, and... Um, and was this, you know, was this old when he, when he became a king? In other words, uh, king, king David, right, we'll move on to the kings after him. 
What's, a, what's one of the kings? King Ahaz or somebody. King Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and then he ruled in Jerusalem for 20 years. Something like that. That's the start. That's, you, that's when you know that you're getting into this regnal formula. It's called the regnal formula. And the thing, the thing is, that formula is repeated for every king. And Sunday school people, you know, I, I, I say this all the time, repetition is for effect. When you're reading scripture and you see repetition, highlight it. It's there for a reason. There's some kind of um, message. There's some kind of evaluation of the author. There's something being said. So it'll start off identifying. After that, it will identify the mother of the king. I believe this is just for genealogical purposes. It doesn't mention the father because it's, it's clear the, the father of the king was the previous king. That's how the, king, the kingdoms worked. Uh, it was by bloodline. And so the identity of the father was basically the previous king. So they would mention the mother. And that's probably just to say, well, this king came from this line and this line. But there's also something about that. When it mentions the name of this king's mother, you know, there's something, when I think about this, there's something about mothering that's important. And here in this room, I've spoken to people and professionals. I'm, this is not even in my notes. Um, but I want to speak to mothers at this moment as well. That the important task of mothering and the work that you do forms the next Mr. President or Madam President. The work that you do prepares and paves the way for the next generation, whether they will do good in the sight of the Lord or whether they will do evil in the sight of the Lord. So yes, on the one hand, scholars can say they just mentioned the name of the, the mother just for genealogical purpose. But on the other hand, I think there's more than that. There's this famous story, famous story of one of the great Christians in the early period, St. Augustine. And St. Augustine, his mother, Monica was her name. Monica, good Italian name, right? Mo Monica, if I, if, I, if, if I got that right. She was a Christian. And this is, you're talking... You know, around the year 300. It was very early. She was one of the early Christians. But her son, Augustine, he liked to go into the city. He liked to go out to the clubs. It's, it's, it's <laughs> he liked to get his thing on, and he liked to, he liked to go to... You know, I don't have to get graphic here, but he was not exactly, you know, an upstanding young man. I mean, he... he he liked to have fun. And he was a scholar. And she prayed and she prayed and she prayed. Monica would pray for her son, Augustine. And he would say, Mother, I'm okay, thank you. But no thank you. <laughs> As a grown man, even. And she would kind of get on him and say, Augustine, when, when are you going to turn your life over to Jesus? One day she says, Augustine, Augustine, she phones him up. Right? I had a dream. What is it, Mother? I dreamt that I was standing on a plank. It was wobbly, and I'm on this plank, and an angel spoke to me, and I saw you standing on the plank with me. And the angel said, where you are, he will be also. Where you are, he will be also. And Augustine kind of rolled his eyes. He said, Mom... 
listen, you're being codependent, and you're being, and all of these. I'm 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 kind of uh, I'm kind of um, dressing this up a little bit. He says, "Mom, don't worry. I'll always take care of you. Uh, you you'll be with me. You'll be with me. I'll take care of you today, and I'll, you can stay with me." And she said, "No, that's not what the angel said." The angel didn't say, where you are, I'm going to be following you around. The angel said, where I am, you will be. He will be. Did you get that? Where I am, where, where Monica, where the mother is, he will one day be as well. That mothers, your prayers for your children, and you're investing, and you're weeping, and you're fighting for the next generation, will one day result in the transformation where the wayward son or the crazy daughter will one day be where you are so that you are squarely grounded in the faith. Because the work that you do as a mother, the work, the work, the opus, we're not just talking about professionals, but the opus, the work that you do as mothers, professional mothers, will result in the next generation doing good in the sight of the Lord or evil. I mean, just read that. Read the regnal formula again and again. So-and-so's, so-and-so did good in the sight of so-and-so. What did his mother teach him? The effect of a powerful woman in the life of a child is, is um, undeniable, in my opinion. Anyway, the regnal formula continues. It mentions the king, how many years, the mother, and then it has the evaluation, the king did bad, evil in the sight of the Lord, or good. And if he did evil, that's the end of the story. I mean, it would continue on and just cite the king's misdeeds. And how bad would that be? That for the next 3,000 years, your legacy and not just for 3,000 years, but into eternity, your legacy is, you, you did bad. You, you, really were, you were really bad. I don't want that. Maybe that's why I'm so obsessed with this question. Personally, I am. How do we break cycles? So after, I mean, if it's not evil in the sight of the Lord, the question then is, they did good in the sight of the Lord. So this king did good. This king did good in the sight of the Lord. But after that, there's one last piece to the regnal formula. And this is where I want to camp out just a little bit. That last piece to the regnal formula is, this king did good. Does anybody know what's next after that? But the high places were not removed. That is the repeated repeated phrase and the theme that we want to come back to. The high places were not removed. Removed. Now, eight out of ten times, that is the case. If the king did good, and the high places were removed, those incidents, those cases, they exist. But more often than not, the king did the king did good, but the high places were not removed. So everybody follows, right? The high places, what exactly are high places? Now, high places were quite literally high places. They were high places. They were hills, mountains. And back then, um, you know, we believe the earth was flat and God was in the sky because that was the heavens. That was the, that was the metaphysical understanding. The heavens, the earth, if I want to get closer to God, what do you do? You climb a tree or you, you, you go up a mountain you know, I, I'm going to seek the Lord in prayer. Well, we're going to go to the high places so we can get closer to God. So the, the thing about these high places is they were cultural. 
They were cultural, and you see this in your notes. There's four timeless characteristics. The first thing is it was culturally ingrained, even mentally, philosophically ingrained. If the earth is flat, in the worldview of the ancient people, and God is in the sky, you're going to go up to the high place if you have some kind of plea, or some kind of an offering, or some kind of a prayer. So they would go to these high places and they would worship, but the problem is... The problem is oftentimes at the high places, they were not just praying to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Oftentimes they were praying to other gods or they were praying to idols. And so what would happen is these, these, these cultural places where everybody say, you know, for Korean people, we do this thing on New Year's. We, it's just this regular family ritual that involves bowing and everything. Well, we say it's New Year's. Let's just go to the high place and make our offering for good, good, good blessings for the new year. The problem with this is that it repeats again and again and again all throughout the Kings and Chronicles this formula that says the high places were not removed, the high places were not removed, the high places were not removed. And the thing is, they were cultural, they were tolerated, but they were also insidious, they were dangerous. And I think that is what the author of these books is trying to say. Now understand, whoever is writing, we don't realize this when we're reading the Bible. We don't realize this when we're reading the Bible. We think everybody's just prophesying into the future. Authors sometimes write retrospectively. Whoever's writing the Kings and the Chronicles has the benefit of hindsight and evaluation. Somebody's writing with the question, what happened to us? How did we get to this place? It must have been the high places. Something. There was something that led to our downfall. The author of those books has the benefit of hindsight and is making what I believe is the theological evaluation. It was those pesky high places that we couldn't do away with, that persisted through each generation, those places on top of mountains, those little shrines that they built to Ashtaroth or to Baal, these places of worship, that was what God detested, and that's why God left us, so to speak. And that's why we fell. You know, let me illustrate how this works. In 2 Kings chapter 12, we have one king, his name is Jehoash. Jehoash was different from his father, and different from his grandfather. The two kings before him did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did bad. They did poorly. Jehoash comes on the scene and he says, I'm not going to be like them. I'm going to turn things around. And it says he did good in the sight of the Lord. He did good in everything except for that lingering habit. The high places. He didn't take care of the high places. He left the high places alone. It's hard. Because as it says in your notes, number one, they were cultural. Number two, they were tolerated. It's kind of like telling everybody, you know, um, don't, you know, I don't even know how to, how, to, how to put it in a modern context. It's just something that everybody did. It required more work to undo. So these things, they were tolerated, they were cultural. Well, look, uh, Jehoash did right in the sight of the Lord, only the high places were not taken away. In chapter 14, Jehoash's son Amaziah did exactly the same thing. 
He did right in the sight of the Lord, but the high places, they still didn't go away. That lingering thing, that lingering habit. In chapter 15, Jehoash's grandson, Azariah, again, the same thing. He did good in the sight of the Lord, but that lingering thing, the high places, they weren't taken away. And by the time you get to chapter 16, Jehoash's great-great-grandson is engaging in child sacrifice, which is an abomination. Now, uh, how do you get from doing good to doing the greatest kind of evil? Because these things are generational. That's why. Because when they stick in the family line and then they get in your genetics, if such a thing is possible, they're hard to weed out. They're, it's really hard to change those patterns. It's really, really difficult. And so those characteristics of high places in your notes, they were cultural, they were tolerated, they were generational, and they were dangerous, they were insidious. So much so that by the end of the book of Second Kings, in chapter 25, Judah is completely gone. It's not on the map anymore. Babylon eats it up. And the author is saying, now how did I get here, stowed away, or some exile in a far-off country? What happened to our glorious nation? We were supposed to be God's chosen. I look back at the records, this is what, what happened. This is what we did wrong. We didn't take care of that nagging thing. That nagging sin we didn't take care of. It lingered. We didn't get the help that we needed. We didn't confess. We didn't connect with anybody. We just kind of tolerated and let it continue into 2019. It was tolerated and we let it continue into 2019. You know, when you read Old Testament books, we have to be careful. It's important that we interpret well. Because a lot of the things were cultural. How do we interpret high places for today? What are the essential, essential, what's the essential message about the high places that applies to our modern context today? Those are the four things. What is in your life? What is in my life today that is cultural, that is tolerated, that's generational, and that's insidious? If I don't deal with it, it could lead, if not in my lifetime, it could lead to something down the road. Friends, I'm, I'm a strong, strong believer in self-work, in improving oneself. I'm a strong, strong believer in that. Improving your lot in life, improving your mental state of being, Improving ourselves economically, improving ourselves psychologically, improving ourselves physically. I'm a firm believer in that. I, 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 I'm not boasting, but just so that I'm, I'm, I'm leading. You know, I ran six miles yesterday. Oh, I walked a little bit too. It's a good start of the year, but I mean it. And I'm not boasting. That's just, that's, that's. I, I don't know what it is, but self-improvement is, is an important thing. Because if we're not growing and we're regressing, that, 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 I, I, I just don't want it said of me 3,000 years later that so-and-so did evil in the sight of the Lord. And I certainly don't want it said that the high places persisted. It takes work. I don't know what it, what it looked like to remove those high places they must have had earth movers and bulldozers back then. I mean, how do you remove this? How do you change the culture? Do you understand? Everybody says, it's New Year's. Let's go sacrifice to, this, to the moon god. 
up on the mountaintop. I mean, you can't just bulldoze. You've got to change the complete culture. Do you hear that? It's like telling a drug addict, for example, just stop using. Yeah, I'll stop using. I'm just going to go back to my old stoop, right? And I'm just not going to buy anymore. Like, you need to change the complete environment. You need to change the way of thinking. You need to change the complete approach to life. We break the cycle. Why do we connect? Why do we confess? Because that's the first step to breaking the cycle. If we don't acknowledge it, I'm fine. I don't want to talk about the past. I didn't have any family problems, and I'm just fine. Leave me alone. I guarantee we will not break anything. I guarantee 2019 will not be a year of growth. It will just be the same old. We confess because we say, I suspect there are some things. And that's the beginning. That's the beginning. But the second half that I want to wrap up with is healing. Not only do we break cycles, and I pray in Jesus' name that 2019 will be the year that cycles in all of our lives, myself included, yes, I'm human, that all of us will see cycles broken, the bad high places progressively, and maybe even for some of us definitively, this will be the last year, or 2018 will be the last year, or 2019 will be the last year where that thing happens, or that, 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 that behavior comes out, or that attitude, or that whatever. That 2019 will be the year of change. Amen? May 2019 also be the year that we heal. Not just break cycles, but that we heal. And I think of James chapter 5, verse 16, and I'm in the second and last piece here. James 5, it says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And so you see that connection. There is a connection. Confess so that you may be healed. But in between those two verbs, confess and heal, there is the, the third verb, pray. So we confess. Here's the thing. I said it before. We can, if, if it says confess and be healed, great. I don't need to tell anybody anything. God, I confess. I stole a million dollars yesterday. Be healed. Well, no, you're going to have to report that to the IRS or you're going to have to make amends or give the money back. You're going to have to do something in the intervening. That's the pray portion. There's a human element involved. We can't just confess and be healed. The healing comes from those key words, one another, one another. They appear twice. Confess to one another. Pray for one another. It's, I believe, when we read these verses, we emphasize confess and heal. I believe the most important words in that sentence is one another. The confession does not come alive until it happens to one another. It's this connectional piece that I believe is powerful. I'm not here this first Sunday that we're all together to say, confess, confess, confess. That's not, you know, I've been in some Christian circles where they're like, they just want to tell you to repent, repent. I want to say back to the pastor, you repent. Uh, that's not my agenda. My agenda today is not to confess. My agenda is one another. One another. That's the key word. I believe in this so much. 
That the key to health and to healing is with one another. It does not happen alone. Connection is the key. I'm going to share one last story. I love this story. And um, it's, it's a true story. And I think this will drive the point home. The story goes about a man named William Griffith Wilson. True story. William Griffith Wilson was a New York City stockbroker. And this was uh, around the time of Prohibition, 1935. William Griffith Wilson was a New York City stockbroker and he was an alcoholic. Couldn't, he couldn't seem to get things together. Couldn't seem to turn his life around. I mean, you're talking, uh, he, he's a real alcoholic. And um, one day, he fell in with a Christian group called the Oxford Club. The Oxford Club, I don't have time to go into that, but these were, um, these were life reformers, uh, good people, good work. The Oxford Club, and they told him, if you want to break your habit, you're going to have to turn your life over to God. And alcoholics, I don't want to have anything to do with God. But then he says, listen, you know, the, the Oxford Club, they're telling him, you need to get religion. Without God, you'll never be free. He says, let me try Jung. Let me try, let me try the medical route. Let me try psychology. And even if all of those failed, even Jung said, you need God. I can't help you anymore. I'm talking about the psychologist, Carl Jung. Psychology can't help you. You need God. So finally, in a moment, William Griffith Wil- uh, Wilson has a moment where he turns his life over to God completely. He says, I can't beat this thing. And the words that he used or I give you everything. I, I, I will do whatever you want me to do in order to stop. Whatever. Keyword. Whatever you want, it's yours. That was the beginning of his sobriety. But here's the thing. Come June 2019, you started well today. You said, Pastor Wayne fired me up. I feel good. But come June, you're going to want to drink again. Or you're going to want to do something bad again. Or you're going to want to act out again. Or that behavior. Relapse is a thing for all of us. I read an interesting article in a magazine. Um, opioid use is a major, um, major crisis in our country today. And that it takes the average person, average uh, as if, as if the, you know, there's an average baseline, but it takes the average person in recovery from opo- opioid use eight years to finally break the habit. Eight years! So listen, we're all addicted to sin, right? Are we not? That's why we're, that's, we're fallen. But here's the thing. The temptation will come back, and that's what happened to Will, William Wilson. Six months later, he had been sober for six months, he went on a business trip to Akron, Ohio, middle of nowhere. He goes to Ohio on a business trip. And he's in his newfound sobriety, six months. And he pushes the deal forward, and they push back, and he pushes, and he meets up against this unstoppable wall. And in the end, it fails, and he feels horrible. What kind of a man am I? How come I can't seem to get anywhere in life? Value. I don't feel good about myself. Self-worth goes down the tube. Self-esteem and all of those things. And I just want to take the edge off. It's Miller time. I just want to feel good again. And he's alone in a hotel in a foreign city. And he can hear the laughter from the hotel bar. And he can hear the gaiety. And he's thinking to himself, Oh, if I could just 
if I could just one, one drink. But he knows himself too well. He knows that one drink is the beginning of the end. And so in desperation, as he feels the cravings return, what does he do? He walks past the hotel bar and he goes into the phone booth. Oh, what am I doing in here? What was I going to... What am I doing in the hotel booth, in the phone booth? And okay, he opens up the phone book and he looks up the local church. And the guy's desperate. God, right? I need to call on God. So he literally calls the pastor, see if he can get in touch with God. And the pastor says, "Hey, can I help you? My name is Bill Wilson. Um, I'm looking for I don't know. I guess I'm looking for somebody to talk to. But you probably have no idea. Are you an alcoholic?" The pastor says, "No." And uh pastor says, no, but I know a local alcoholic, or I know somebody. And he says, well, well, do you know somebody I can talk to? And he says, yes, there's somebody in town here. His name is Dr. Robert Smith. Bill Wilson says, oh, no, 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 I, I didn't say I want to talk to somebody to get better. I, I wanted to talk to another alcoholic. And he says, Dr. Bill, um, Dr., Dr. Bob Smith is an alcoholic. He's in trouble because he performs surgery under the influence and he can't seem to get better. You can find him at this address. So Bill Wilson, he says, okay, all right. So he, 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 he walks past the hotel bar, and he's just on a mission against every inclination and urge that he has to just check out and go back into the bar. He goes over to Dr. Bob's house, and he says, hey, I'm Bill Wilson. I'm an alcoholic. I want to just talk to you about God. Door slams in his face. And Dr. Bob says, I'll give you 15 minutes. Bill Wilson, Bill W., as he's affectionately called, sits down with Dr. Bob. And they sit down, and he starts saying, I'm an alcoholic, and he starts telling him his story. And as they talk, 15 minutes becomes one hour, becomes two hours, three hours, four hours, becomes five hours. They talk for five hours. Not only do they talk for five hours, Bill W. ends up staying in Akron, Ohio, for three more months, helping Bob get sober. And then after that, they meet what is somebody, they meet an, a lawyer who's trying to get sober, and basically you have the first three founding members of Alcoholics Anonymous, AA. Which, listen, it's a spiritual program. It's a Christian program. That's, that's my strong assessment. As a minister, I've worked here and there. Um, I know what they're doing there. You know, what happened at that fateful moment in the hotel bar, I think is very instructive for all of us. At the hotel lobby, you are looking for connection, but you've had decades of life and centuries of genetic wiring to behave a certain way. Decades of your life and centuries of genetic wiring, all built, all cross-wired the wrong way for mechanics. I mean, Bennett, you know this? You know what it's like to look underneath the hood and you say, it's all wired wrong, whoever did this. That's what happened to us somewhere along the way. Somebody opened up the hood, tampered with the wiring, and said, let me put this person back together, all screwed up. And we come all fangled up with our nerves and our emotions and our feelings and our disconnection. We're not connecting and we've had decades and genetic centuries of wrong wiring for disconnection. Arguably not just centuries but millennia going all the way back to the first man and woman. Wired for connection 
but wrongly wired to disconnect, to check out, to take care of myself, to find solution at the bottom of that cup, or to somehow take care of my own needs, my own way. I don't need anybody else. I don't need to ask for help. I don't need to certainly confess my sins, Pastor. I mean, stick it in your left ear. I don't want to hear it. I don't need it. I can do it on my own. But what he did was he went against his own innate wiring. Wired for disconnection. And he rewired himself that day. And my guess is probably hundreds, if not thousands of more times again later into the future. You know, Dr. Bob, he actually relapsed once during the time when Bill and Dr. Bob were together. During that three-month span, he relapsed. He drank again. And the, fun, the story is funny because as he was, as he was coming off of, you know, he, he's coming off of his bender, you know, he was going through delirium tremens. And Bill W. actually bought some alcohol to give to Bob, Dr. Bob, in order to kind of come off easy. And that was Dr. Bob's last drink forever. It was given to him by another alcoholic. It's funny to me. Friends, the closing question is, are are we rewiring ourselves regularly, constantly? Six months from now, the the default wiring is going to want to assert itself. Are are, are you rewiring? Am, Am I? Are we rewiring ourselves for connection? It takes intentional discipleship. You hear that? That's our mission priority, intentional discipleship. That's why I say, that's why I say, find somebody here to talk to. It doesn't have to be me. Bonifer says this. Jesus says this. You can do it with each other. You don't need a priest. Confess. Pray. Heal with one another. May 2019 be the year that you intentionally rewire together with somebody in this room. I mean it. Rewire with somebody here. If you don't want to confess to me, I will not be offended. Find somebody here. Rewire for connection. Last three applications. If you could just pull those up on the screen, I want to invite you to keep these in mind. Could you pull all of them up, Ryan, at the same time? Listen, take your phone out. Do me a favor. And just take a picture of the screen. If you don't care about these applications, I'm not offended. You can delete it the minute you walk out of this room. But I'm asking you to do this so that at least you'll have the option to delete it later on and you'll have it recorded in your mind. What, what are the th- three things that I can change this year? Number one, rewire. Rewire for connection. Number three, I'm skipping. Number three, who in this room, in this room can I confess to or pray with and be healed by? And by this room, I mean figuratively, who in woven or in this, even in this Kingdom City community? Who can I connect with? But also consider in my life what's cultural, tolerated, generational, and insidious. We want freedom from those things in 2019.